Well, good morning, church. It is a privilege to be with all of you this morning. Um, a lot of new faces, that's okay, um, but it's good to see so many of you and to be able to share with you this morning from the Word of God and to be able later this afternoon, hopefully, to have an opportunity to share with you about um, the work that God is doing in the world and in Central Asia. Um, we're so grateful for you. We're so grateful for your prayers, for your encouragement, for how you keep up with us. Uh, so many of you uh, tell us all the time how you read the newsletters and keep up with what we're doing. And we praise God for you. We really believe that the prayers that you lift up on our behalf uh, have that God and his economy, he uses those. And the work that we're, that we're doing that is... Um, in his mysterious ways, he takes those prayers and he sustains us. And we're so grateful. And uh, so if you would, uh, we're going to pray and then we're going to take a look at this passage in First Peter together. And um, uh, Luke's assured me that I have about an hour and a half for this message. I'm just kidding. Um, no, it's all right. Let's pray. Father, we are so very grateful to you uh, for the privilege of gathering as your church this morning. We thank you for um, calling us to yourself, for your salvation, which is to us uh, the greatest gift of all. You bless us in so many ways, but most of all, you have blessed us through the gospel of your Son, that in him we have new life, and we have, um, uh, we, we, we have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ from the dead. Father, we praise you this morning because you are a mighty and exalted and sovereign God. You, as your word says, are the God who sits enthroned above the circle of the earth, the one who measures uh, the seas in the hollow of his hands. Uh, you are the God who stands above all things. Um, creation and history are yours, and you command them. And that is the God that we come before this morning. But even as great and as mighty and as powerful and as holy and righteous as you are, you are also the God who cares for us, who knows us. Uh, your word teaches us that you know when sparrows fall from the sky, that you know the numbers of hairs on our head, that you know all the days of our life because they were written in your book before there was even one of them, that you even count our tossings in the night. The psalmist says, you know us, and we are assured through that of your presence with us. And I pray that as we look into these verses this morning, that our hearts would be deeply encouraged as we consider your presence in our lives, even as we face suffering and persecution. Father, especially on our hearts this morning are our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan, uh, many of them are gathering even this morning under a cloud of uncertainty of what the days ahead will bring. And so I pray that you would sustain them, that you would give them um, the, the certainty of the hope that they have in Christ, that they would trust in you, that they would look forward to the days ahead, even if it means persecution and suffering, um, with great hope, knowing that you will again appear and knowing as well that you are even present with them now. Father, we lift up to you um, this church and this community. We pray for Crabapple Church. We pray for this community as well that this church would shine brightly as a light uh, for the gospel in this place and around the world. Father, as we open up your word now as you bring us um, your word through your spirit and, uh, and you privilege us to be messengers and hearers. Father, I pray that you would speak through your word to us and that we would be careful listeners and doers of your word. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, 
So in the fall of 2013, I received a phone call from a local brother in our Central Asian country informing me that our national partner, the pastor of our local church, had been arrested and on an accusation of human trafficking. I was stunned as I tried to process all the implications of that in that one moment. Um, how were his wife and son? What must he be experiencing? Was there possibly any truth to the accusation that was being made? If so, how could I have been blind to it? How could others have been blind to it? Um, what had happened to the victims? What would happen to the local church, to the larger work that we were a part of? What would our family and our team uh, there in our Central Asian city do? In a country that is virulently hostile to Christianity and to the gospel, in which uh, less than 6,000 known evangelical Protestant believers are to be found among 80 million people, Local and even national newspapers seized on the possibility of a scandalous narrative involving one of the country's few Christian pastors. As details began to emerge in the case, we learned that someone claiming to be a refugee had been arrested. That individual, um, someone whom the church and the pastor had helped, as the church had done for many refugees, um, you've even been a part of that through your giving, uh, as it had done for many refugees and continues to do even today, um, that um, it, these accusations had been made against uh, several individuals, and that included our pastor. Uh, and this had appeared even on the front page of the local newspaper. I still remember going to the language school where um, we were in language school at the time, and uh, I remember in the break room overhearing two of the teachers at the language school discussing whether or not the accusations against our local brother were true as they looked at the front page of the newspaper together during a coffee break. It became fairly clear quickly, however, that the accusations were in fact not true, that they were baseless and that they were dreamed up to divert the authorities' attention um, away from uh, the accuser's own wrongdoing. After two and a half years, or two and a half, not two and a half years, praise God. After two and a half days in jail, our pastor was released, and the prosecutor eventually dropped all of the charges. Uh, this happened in what was just a really amazing moment when the bodyguard that had been tasked with uh, protecting our pastor, who he was with him day after day for hours every day, a very uh, religious Muslim man, stood up in court and testified on his behalf. Though lots of news outlets ran the initial sensational headlines, only a couple of small internet little news uh, outlets ran the story explaining that the accusations had been baseless. So the damage had been done, or so we thought. Have you ever been in a trial and wondered what possible good can come from it? Why God would allow you to pass through it? In the month after our local brother's arrest, uh, the newspaper stories and all the rest, the church and our team were able to distribu distribute more than 400 copies of Scripture and hundreds more evangelistic books through the literature stand that sat outside of the building where we would gather. And that was a significant increase over previous weeks. We were able to meet with and explain the gospel to dozens of those who stopped by in the coming months. Apparently because of the increased interest that the story in the newspaper and online had generated. What the enemy had purposed for evil and what he had purposed for shame, 
God had purposed for the advance of his kingdom among the unreached people of our beloved Central Asian country. It was a stressful trial. But in that trial, God taught us a lesson that we would learn and apparently need to relearn again and again and again. And the way that I want to sum up that principle is by trying to sum up um, as a principle what Peter is teaching us in our text this morning. And it's this, that Christian persecution and suffering glorify God through the role that he sovereignly ordains for them in his redemptive purposes. I'm going to say that one more time. Christian persecution and suffering glorify God through the role that he sovereignly ordains for them in his redemptive purposes. We're going to unpack that a little bit this morning. When we suffer as Christians, our suffering is not purposeless, but connected to the work of redemption that God has accomplished through the sufferings of Christ in his death and then in his resurrection and ascension, and the work of restoration that he's preparing for our future hope in Christ's return. And knowing this truth, that God is above it all and that he is working even in the middle of it, knowing this means that we can receive suffering in a way that honors and glorifies God. We're looking this morning at God's glory revealed in persecution and suffering. And we're going to do that from the text of 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19, which we read a moment ago. And in that, I want us to see four responses that Christians are called to have toward persecution and suffering, and then one reassurance about our identity, about who we are, even amid our suffering. So the first response, the first Christian response, the first response that Uh, that Peter calls us to have, even that we could say he commands us to have, amid persecution and suffering is this. We can expect it. We can expect persecution and suffering will be normal for believers. We can expect persecution and suffering will be normal for believers. Persecution and suffering, they comprise an overarching theme in the letter of 1 Peter. And one of the challenges, of course, of taking you all the way to chapter 4 is not talking about the rest of the book, though we'll touch on it a little bit this morning. But he mentions persecution and suffering, Peter does, in every single chapter in this letter. Peter's writing to a mix of Gentiles and Jewish believers, but mostly Jewish believers, scattered out throughout the region that makes up modern-day Turkey to encourage them to endure faithfully as they face persecution and suffering. The Christians in the early church would come to face episodes of systematic persecution by the Roman Empire that involved even um, violent and physical persecution. That's probably not so much what is in the background of what Peter is talking about here. For one thing, it's just a bit early. More likely, Peter has in mind the sort of day-to-day verbal abuse, the rejection the insults, the slander, and the social ostracism that Christians were facing throughout the empire. He may have even had in mind the kind of confrontations that he himself faced uh, after Jesus' arrest that had led to his own denials from which he had repented. In any case, in verse 12, Peter instructs believers not to be surprised when they encounter suffering and persecution. Don't be surprised. That's startling, isn't it? Don't be surprised. What Peter is telling believers is that they should expect suffering and persecution to be the normal experience of the Christian life. I can think of few ideas that are just more counter to 
the expectations of modern life than that one. All of us, of course, have to some extent had our plans upended for more than a year during this global pandemic. Some of us loved ones. Others have been sick or struggled to save off depression and loneliness. We've dreamed about, I've dreamed about, I've talked about when things are finally going to get back to normal, right? Normal. We've been conditioned by the conveniences of modern technology. We're a culture that, uh, I remember the first time I learned that this existed, uh, that has such a thing as wipe warmers, which warms wet wipes um, so that they won't be cold when you change a diaper, right? We're a culture that has cordless charging because evidently it's too complicated to put the cord in the device, Modern technologies, medical anesthesia, the religious freedoms that are afforded to us by the U.S. Constitution, the security that's been won by our nation's military power, and we rightly see those as blessings, and we thank God for all of them, but we've been conditioned by them to see suffering and trials as these bizarre abnormalities that have got to be snuffed out as quickly as possible in order for life to get back to normal. And what Peter is telling us is that for Christians, suffering is normal. It's something that believers share with one another throughout the history of the church, across space and time. In the next chapter, in chapter 5 and verse 9, he reminds believers of the solidarity they have in, quote, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by their brotherhood throughout the world. And he says that to them in order to encourage them. Even today, our brothers in Afghanistan, in Iran, in China, in North Korea, Somalia, and Yemen, and countless other places around the world have gathered together, even in the hours before us, to worship Christ, but have done it under a cloud of suffering and persecution. Their experience of suffering is reflected in the worship of their churches, in their Bible study, in the songs that they sing which remind them of the gospel hope that they have amid persecution. In Western churches, most of our music, most of the songs that we sing are centered on celebration. We should celebrate the truth of the gospel. But we can learn from our brothers and sisters who sing elsewhere amid trials for the suffering that shows up in their hymns. I had the opportunity to help select some of the music we sang this morning, and I think it's some of our our best uh, music that that reflects that you know happy clappy kind of praise courses they don't translate so well in countries where you're gathering under a cloud of persecution and suffering i don't want it to go overboard in ex- calling us out to and to expect normal life to be free from persecution and suffering and i, I don't want to do that for a couple reasons first because the bible doesn't teach us to seek out suffering as if it's fun like we're a bunch of masochists that's just weird. There's some in the church that have taught that we should, um, in the history of the church, taught that we should seek out suffering and martyrdom, uh, like the early church father Ignatius, uh, who went looking for it, but we shouldn't follow their example. And second, I, I don't want to go overboard because our longing for a world in which relationships um, are unbroken by sin a world in which uh, Taliban uncles don't threaten their nephews and their families uh, with their lives for becoming Christians, a world in which uh, communist 
party supply bulldozers don't go and push down church buildings and grind them into the dirt. That's a longing for a world before the fall and a longing for a world to come in which there'll be no more tears, no more suffering, no more persecution, and no more death. But that's still a future hope. That's still a future hope. And that leads us to a second Christian response to persecution and suffering that we see here in the text in verse 13, and that's this. We can rejoice in persecution and suffering because of our union with Christ and our future hope of glory. Peter's command here to rejoice in verse 13, it's just about as startling as his command in verse 12 to not be surprised. Rejoice! Rejoice, he says. That's the response that we're supposed to have instead of being surprised. It's not to be sad or to grieve, to grit our teeth and bear it. Peter tells us, rejoice. Again, he's not saying that we should enjoy suffering. He's not saying that we should like having pain inflicted on us or inflicting it on ourselves. Instead, he's giving us a couple of other reasons that our suffering and our persecution should prompt our rejoicing. Peter exhorts us to rejoice in suffering insofar as we share in Christ's sufferings, by which he does not mean that we somehow contribute to anything that Christ has done in his work on the cross for us. We don't add to it, but instead that as we share in his sufferings, by our own sufferings, we follow in his steps. Through our suffering, we're linked to him. Our suffering points us to his suffering and it gives evidence that we are his and that we're united with him. A good example in scripture, if you want to get the hang of this kind of uh, joy-producing response to suffering, is, um, is to look at the response of the apostles in Acts chapter 5, verse 41. It says, Then they left the presence of the council, and by the council there, it's talking about the Sanhedrin um, that they had been called before. They left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Rejoicing because they were worthy to suffer. Why would they do that? Why would they rejoice in the face of dishonor? Because they recognized that they were sharing in the sufferings of Christ. And also, and here we get to the second part of verse 13, because they were fixed on a future hope, a future hope that they had when Christ's glory is going to be revealed. The idea of a suffering now that looks forward to a future glory later is a theme not only in this letter in Peter, but it's found throughout the whole Bible. In chapter 1, in verses 10 and 11, Peter talks about how the prophets of the Old Testament predicted that first the Christ would suffer, but then that he would be glorified. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 teaches us that Jesus... For the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Let that sink in. It was for joy that Jesus endured the most excruciating death that you and I can imagine. He's our model of a forward-looking suffering, a forward-looking joy amid suffering. And when Jesus comes again in glory and we're finally delivered from suffering once and for all, that's when our joy will be made complete. 
If you've ever been tempted to buy into false gospels that promise you that if you believe in Jesus, you will prosper financially beyond your wildest imaginations, or if that you speak to your situation with enough faith that you can change it, or that if you just keep your thoughts positive enough that you can bend reality in your favor, what Peter is teaching here should smash all of that to pieces. Suffering now calls forth joy now. As believers look forward to a sure hope of a future deliverance where joy in Jesus is going to last forever, brothers and sisters. It's going to last forever. We suffer now and we rejoice now because of a future joy that you and I have in our hope in Christ. Moving on as we get to verse 14, next we're given an assurance. It says in verse 14, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So our third point is this. We're blessed in persecution and suffering because of our present hope of God's glorious presence. We're blessed in persecution and suffering because of our present hope of God's glorious presence. Look with me at verse 14. Just in verse 13, we saw our hope of future glory. Here, we see our present hope of God's glorious presence with us. He says that the glory of God, that glory, that future glory to which we're looking forward, that it breaks in even into the presence. When the, verse 14 says, the spirit of glory and of God, it rests on you. It rests on you. When Peter says, you are blessed in this verse, he almost certainly has Jesus' words in Matthew 5, verses 11 and 12 in mind, where Jesus teaches in the Beatitudes. He says, blessed are you when others, re- excuse me, when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for they so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In John fifteen twenty, he says, just as they persecuted me, so also will they persecute you. Jesus is teaching we are blessed. And so Peter is taking off of that language from Peter or from Jesus. And he's encouraging the believers, telling them, you are blessed. You are blessed. But there's a difference here. Because where Jesus' words in Matthew, just like Peter's words in verse 13 that we just a moment ago looked at, are focused on a future hope and reward. Did you see it in Matthew? For your reward is great in heaven, Jesus says. Here in verse 14, here in verse 14, it's a present reality. The blessing comes even in the here and now through our suffering. Peter's already pointed that out, by the way, earlier in the letter. You can go back and look at it. Actually, I'll just um, read it um, briefly. In chapter 1 and verse 8, Peter says this, though you have not seen him, talking about Jesus, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. You believe in him now and rejoice with joy now that is inexpressible and filled with glory, presumably right now, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Brother or sister, 
If you're suffering for Christ or experiencing persecution, the spirit of glory and of God is resting on you now. Not only has God not left you and he has not abandoned you, as we're all tempted to think probably in our worst moments, Christ is present with you now, strengthening you to endure all suffering through his spirit that is resting on you and that indwells you through the Holy Spirit that's living inside of you. What can anybody do to you? Throw you out of a country? Throw you into prison? Take away your job? Humiliate you in front of your boss? Destroy your body? None of that can do anything to us. Nothing can come against us to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. His Spirit is present with us. It is resting upon us. It's a present hope. I want to point out one more thing from verse 14 before we move on. And that's the kind of suffering and persecution that Peter shows us that he has in view here. Peter isn't just talking about all suffering generally, which would include even suffering that we bring upon ourselves through our own sinful actions. We'll talk about that more in a minute when we look at the next few verses. But he's referring specifically to being insulted for the name of Christ or verbal abuse for living as a Christian and differently from the world. If you look a few verses earlier in chapter 4, he writes, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they're surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. And what do they do? They malign you. They insult you. In other words, these Christians that Peter writes to, they're being insulted for honoring the name of Christ and rejecting the practices, the sinful practices of the surrounding culture. Of course, that kind of verbal abuse, it can and often um, did, even in the case of the early Christians, lead to physical abuse and violence. But the main idea here that he seems to have in mind is verbal insults and slander. We shouldn't minimize how verbal insults can affect us. We shouldn't minimize that. This gets pretty personal, personal for me. Um, I hesitate to make myself the center of this illustration, but I want to offer it to you as a testimony uh, to God's kindness in teaching me to receive and our family to receive suffering as a blessing when I didn't want to. When I didn't want to. Many of you know, for nearly 10 years, we labored by God's grace to serve the people of our Central Asian country to whom we had been sent. We desired to take nothing from our friends. We didn't want anything from our neighbors. We didn't want anything from the government of that country. We didn't want anything except to bless them by extending to them the gospel of of God's grace in Christ. But in November of 2019, I learned from the authorities that because we had attended a family Bible camp and um, with some national brothers and sisters that I had been labeled by the government a, quote, threat to public health and safety, um, a terrorist, uh, that I had been banned from further entering the country and that we'd have to move. And as many of you know, we were devastated by that. We wondered why God would allow us to be forced to leave a place that we were so convinced that he had called us to, a place that we had grown to love and the relationships in which we had invested in the people that we had grown to love. Shortly after, we received the news, a fellow brother, a worker, who had served in our country for more than 30 years 
and who had also been forced to leave. And in his case, he didn't even have the opportunity to say goodbye. He uh, showed up at the passport line at the airport and they said, I'm sorry, you can't come back, you can't come in. After 30 years, he reached out to me and God used his words. An echo of Peter's words here in um, verse 15. He wrote to me um, these words and it really reoriented our perspective in some ways and that isn't to say that everything changed all of a sudden and that um, that I was you know uh, I knew these things to be true uh, of course he wrote hard as it is to say I rejoice brother that you too are counted worthy to suffer for his name rejoicing in his getting glory through our faithful response to suffering that come our way God reassured us through that trial again and again that, this, that his spirit of glory was resting even upon us. Friend, perhaps you're walking through suffering. Perhaps you're walking through suffering for Christ's name and you're unconvinced of God's purposes for you in it. Know, know that his spirit rests on you and because it does, you're blessed. You're blessed. So, two Christian responses to suffering, an assurance that we're blessed And now a third response, a third Christian response to suffering. We see this in verses 15 through 16. And that's this. We can glorify God in persecution and and suffering by receiving it with integrity and without shame. We can glorify God in persecution and suffering by receiving it with integrity and without shame. So, back to the kind of suffering here that Peter has in view. In verse 15, he exhorts believers not to suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or a meddler. Now, the first three here seem pretty obvious. We'd expect that for the most part that Christians would mostly be able to avoid suffering for those reasons, right? But why does he mention meddlers? What is that even? Meddlers here, meddling, is synonymous with the kind of busybodies that Paul mentioned in his, letter, uh, in his letters to the Thessalonians. They're gossiping types that insert themselves into business that just really isn't their business. Do we have anything like that in the church in America? Or is it just in our Central Asian context? I don't know. I'm guessing that it's pretty much can be found in lots of places, right? And We don't get to say, you know what? I'm suffering because of that. I'm suffering when it turns out that the reason you're suffering is for being a meddler. You're not suffering for Christ. You're just suffering for being a nuisance, right? So that's not the kind of suffering that Peter has in mind here. And when he lists those, this, um, this list here, murderer, thief, evildoer, There's a preposition there right before meddler so that the phrase, that last phrase there, meddler, it could could be translated um, suffer, don't suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or even as a meddler, even as a meddler. What Peter's saying is that the cause of suffering matters, the reason for it. He's not talking about suffering that we bring on ourselves through our own sinful actions, whether it's for murder or to what we might consider a lot of us, um, though probably not rightly, to be a small sin like meddling. He's talking about undeserved suffering and suffering that, ha- that is undeserved and happens for living as a Christian. He's saying 
brothers and sisters, live your life so that the only crime against your persecutors or your would-be persecutors is your Christian faith. Live your life like that. Next, why does he say, let him not be ashamed? Let him not be ashamed. It's helpful to remember here that this word, Christian, we use it all the time now, but it was first applied to the believers in Antioch by outsiders, and it was likely most often used in a very derogatory or a kind of dismissive way. King Agrippa in Acts chapter 26, when Paul's standing before him giving a defense, he uses it that way. Oh, the Christian. Wait, Agrippa says, I suppose you'd want to make me a Christian? Dismissive, derogatory. When Peter says not to be ashamed, he's calling believers to resist the temptation to deny their identity in Christ, to deny that name, a temptation that can be brought on by the world's constant insults. And instead, what he's telling them is own it. Own that name along with its insult and glorify God in it. Our fellowship there in Central Asia for many years, it was the only gathering for hundreds of miles. It was made up of the poor, college students, refugees, other people from the social margins. This church is like a little rickety ship on a, on a hostile sea of unbelief. These believers gathering. From the world's perspective, weak, quaint, maybe even ridiculous. <laughs> Isn't that cute? Those believers meeting over there, those you know, refugees, it's poor people. But when we gather, for example, on a small group on a Thursday night and we take the word of God and we gather together around it, the biblical reality about that group was that there was no more important meeting taking place in that moment in our entire region and maybe at that moment in the entire country because what we really were was a high-level gathering at the local embassy of God's eternal kingdom. That's what was really going on there. And we strive to encourage one another by reminding each other of that reality. Church, you're a chosen race, Peter says in this letter. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. That is who you are. That is your identity. Don't be ashamed of that. Don't be ashamed of the name that you wear, Christ's name, but wear it and glorify God in wearing it. Moving to the last section of this passage, we see a a fourth and a final response to persecution and suffering. And that's this. We can trust God and live for his glory knowing that persecution and suffering serve his purposes. We can trust God and live for his glory knowing that persecution and suffering serve his purposes. Verse 17 starts out with a little word there, for or because. And in this section, Peter offers us a window on how Christian suffering and persecution, how our suffering and persecution fit into the greater picture of what God is doing in the world, into the greater picture of his sovereign purposes. Peter writes, it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. He says it there in verse um, 17. 
Time for judgment to begin at the household of God. Peter's drawing here on language from Ezekiel 9 and from Jeremiah 25 that describe how God's judgment begins with his own people, with his own household. But Peter doesn't mean here that Christians should expect the kind of judgment that leads to condemnation. And he also doesn't mean that the persecution and suffering that Christians experience are meant for them as punishment for their sin. Neither one of those. How do I know that? Well, for one thing, it doesn't fit with the rest of Scripture. Not even this letter, certainly not the New Testament. You think of verses like Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So what's he mean? Peter here is referring to the same kinds of things that he means if you look back up in verse 6 of this chapter. Namely, that God is acting in the role of a judge of all peoples and in the case of Christians who will also be judged, his role involves a judgment that leads to life. It's a judgment that leads to life. But that's not the case with those who reject him. It's not the case with those who reject him. And for those who reject him, it's a terrible judgment. Second Thessalonians verses one or chapter 1, verses 7 through 9, describe what becomes of those who reject God, the ones who do the persecuting. It says, When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. And when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. That, brothers and sisters, is a sobering vision. And it shouldn't move us to pride. Shouldn't move us to pride. Oh, we got it figured out. Those guys are going to get theirs. No. Should move us to pity for those who don't know Christ and to want to do all that we can to proclaim the gospel to them, the gospel of grace, so they can know the same thing that you and I have experienced, which is salvation from our sins. So then, if persecution isn't God's punishment in his judgment of believers, then how does it fit into his greater plan and purposes? If he's not letting us go through that to, uh, to punish us because he wants to judge us. Why does he let us go through it? What's the point? Why, why do we, is it just purposeless? No. Here Peter assures us it's not. It fits into God's purposes because persecution, it sorts out humanity. It separates those who are truly Christ's from those who are not. It may seem strange to us may seem uncomfortable to us a little bit to imagine that any persecution or suffering that we experience could somehow fit into God's plan and purposes or that it could even happen according to his will. How could God will something like that? But look at the text. It's exactly what verse 19 says. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will. That can be a little unsettling. But I want to suggest that instead of unsettling us, it should comfort us very, very deeply. It should comfort us. Why? 
because our suffering isn't random. It isn't purposeless. Like the refiner's fire, the fiery trial of suffering, as Peter called it back up in verse 12, it tests the genuineness of our faith so that it comes out on the other side more precious than gold. That's what Peter says in chapter 1. It's the refiner's fire that ultimately he uses to prove the genuineness of our faith. Glory follows afflictions. In the one, words of one of my favorite writers, Richard Sibbs, he says, glory follows afflictions, not as the day follows the night, but as the spring follows the winter. For the winter prepares the earth for the spring, so do afflictions sanctified prepare the soul for glory. They prepare our souls for glory. Our suffering is ordained by our faithful creator. That's why Peter uses that name for God there, our faithful creator. Why? Because he's deliberately using it because he wants us to remember two things. One, that God is faithful, that he keeps his promises, that what he says comes to pass, that when we're told his spirit rests on us, it's actually happening, that when Jesus says to us, surely I'll be with you always, even to the end of the age, that he's actually with us he is faithful and he's faithful to have his spirit rest on us as we endure persecution and suffering faithful the second word creator one of the few places in the new testament where god is called creator why does he refer to him here as creator that seems kind of random i think he does it to remind us that this one who is with us in suffering who purposes our suffering for his plans and purposes for the universe is the same one who made it. The one who is over all and in all and through all and apart from whom nothing can happen that happens, who is holding all things together by the word of his power, as Colossians says, that that faithful creator God entrusts yourself to him, he says, He is lovingly faithful to keep his promise. He is the creator and sovereign over all things. It's that God, that God that ordains our suffering in order to prepare us for a future hope of glory. Friends, entrust yourselves to him like Peter says in verse 19. Entrust your soul to him. Give your life to him in faith. Embrace him as your joy, as your passion, as your treasure. And let that faith abound in what he says there at the end of the verse, in doing good. In doing good. A a faith that works itself out in doing good to our neighbors, to our friends, to our coworkers, to our classmates, to people that we don't even know halfway around the world that we either go to or we send others to. Let that be our response to suffering and persecution, brothers and sisters. Would you pray with me? Father God, we are so very grateful to this word to us, for this word to us. We thank you that you are our faithful creator, God, that you are the one who, whose spirit rests upon us, who enables us to endure suffering and persecution, who enables us to do strange things, like not be surprised when we suffer or to rejoice when we suffer. Father, how weird that language is in our world. 
But Father, I pray that for each of my brothers and sisters here and for myself, that that would be who we are, that we would be a people that would endure suffering and persecution with joy, knowing two things, that you are with us, that you are present with us even now, and that we have a future hope of glory in Christ's return. I pray it in Jesus' name, amen.